Now, we are approaching the end of our uh, study on Romans chapters 6 through 8. And we've been moving deliberately and carefully through Romans chapter 8 in recent weeks. And this morning, we're going to be focusing on verses 18 to 30. I intend to move methodically and slowly through these verses, so it would be really helpful if you had the text in front of you uh, as we go through the study. Otherwise, a lot of what I say won't make much sense. Now, the verses break down fairly obviously into two main sections. Uh, So we're going to read the first section now, and then we'll return to the text later for the second reading. For context, we're going to start at verse 16, and we'll read through to verse 25. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's uh, imagine a teenager uh, sitting at home, hunched over their computer, uh, doing some really difficult maths homework. It's bitterly cold outside. They haven't been able to laugh with their friends in weeks. They're feeling isolated and very downhearted. Now imagine that I walk into their bedroom with a suitcase that contains a million pounds, a passport with a new name and identity, and a large red button. Press this red button, I say, and you will instantly be transported to a beach in Malibu. You can forget all your difficulties, leave all your hard toil behind you, hit the button, and escape this ghastly old world. There are some people who think that the Christian hope is a bit like that. It's a hope which sees this old world as a meaningless prison from which we will escape. And then a completely new life, unrelated to our existing life, will begin. So they see the Christian hope as a a timeline. Hard, painful days, and then bam, the great escape, followed by happiness on some heavenly beach. And the verses we have just read are all about hope. They paint this glorious picture of a future, um, a beautiful future. But there are a couple of interesting things about how Paul approaches the future. And the first is that Paul is not primarily interested in a timeline. His real hope is the hope of transformation. The real journey here is the journey from what I am now to what I will be in the future. And the second thing we notice is that he isn't an escapist. To go back to my teenager hunched over his maths homework, if the apostle Paul entered the room, He wouldn't offer him a suitcase load of cash and a big red escape button. He would sit down beside the teenager and explain why his maths homework mattered. He would connect the suffering of doing maths to the teenager's future hope as a responsible member of society. 
So as we approach these verses, we shouldn't expect the Apostle Paul to say, I know it's all horrible just now, but soon we'll escape this meaningless place and leap into a much more pleasant environment. Paul's journey is not about an escape timeline. It's about transformation. I'm sure you noticed how he connects the suffering we experience now to the glorious future ahead of us. I'm sure you noticed that in the text. In verse 22, he uses the metaphor of childbirth. Now, the women listening to me now who have experienced childbirth know that it involves horrendous pain. But the midwife didn't just say to them, don't worry, this meaningless pain will soon be over. No. The pain of childbirth is always situated in the wider context of joy that attends the birth of a new baby. The suffering and the joy are inextricably linked. The hope which a woman in labor has is derived from the idea that her suffering has purpose, that it will achieve something. So with that idea in mind, let's now step through the verses. Verses 18 to 25 break down into two parts. In verses 18 to 22, Paul describes a glorious future for creation. And then in verses 23 to 25, he describes a glorious future for the Christian believer. Now, that order is important. After all, we are creatures of dust. We are part of the community of creation, of creaturehood. And the Christian hope is not some Gnostic escape from the natural world into some soupy spiritual nirvana. So we need to understand that the future of all creation has to be understood before we can appreciate our own personal futures. It's very interesting that our studies in Romans 8 come straight after the brief study we did uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, that ancient book is not for the faint-hearted. Vanity of vanities, cries the teacher. Most scholars would say that there's only one certain allusion to Ecclesiastes in the whole of the New Testament, and it's found in verse 20 of our passage, when Paul uses the word futility to describe nature's current predicament. The teacher in Ecclesiastes sees nature as an endless cycle, this wheel of life that never goes anywhere. But Paul introduces this astonishing idea that nature itself is like a woman in labor, about to give birth to something that will make all her suffering worthwhile. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, says Paul. In other words, nature is infused with this sense of purpose. Behind all the pain and the ugliness that we encounter in this world, there's a sense that this old world is producing something. And that something will be you. Not you as you are today, but a transformed you a glorified, mature son or daughter of God, a grown-up heir who understands the family business. And a really practical implication flows from that point. One of the big fault lines running through our society today is between those who care deeply about the environment and those who just shrug their shoulders. Now, the arguments involved are really complicated. I don't want to rehearse them here. Ollie Neal and I did a podcast on this subject about a month ago, and you can find it on the website if you're interested. But the point for us this morning is that the Christian should care for this planet. One day we will be responsible for governing the new earth. So we had better start learning how to take care of nature now. That was Adam's big job, remember. And one day we will fulfill the mandate God gave to him. Verse 21 also teaches us that this creation will one day be set free from the bondage it was placed under way back in Genesis chapter 3. At that point, it became subject to what Paul calls here futility and corruption. So we shouldn't rush to the conclusion that this old world has no future. 
Other parts of the New Testament do say that it will be destroyed as, as in the days of Noah. But remember that there was continuity between uh, the creation before and after the flood. Now, the final judgment, of course, will not be by water. It will be by fire uh, at the elemental level. Uh, we're also told in Revelation that many of the basic principles of nature will pass away. So maybe the idea of a food chain and uh, predatory behavior among animals will disappear. But in a way that I can't quite explain, there is a sense in which nothing good will get lost. So perhaps that fire which Peter talks about will be a, a, a refining, transformational judgment that will release creation from its bondage to corruption. So these verses do teach us to care deeply about nature. How can we expect to look after the new earth if we have never bothered to look after this one? And in one sense, secondly, this new earth will be, the new earth will be continuous with the old earth once it has been purified from its bondage to corruption. It cannot be right that we vacate this important aspect of life to the progressive left with their green religion and their worship of pantheism. Christians need to develop a biblical understanding of creation and our responsibilities to the planet as part of the community of creatures. Read the end of Job and you will see just how deeply God loves his creation. So one day we will stand before him and he will ask us, how did you look after the creation I love? In verses 23 to 25, Paul describes the glorious future, not of creation this time, but of the Christian believer. And now we see why he started talking about creation. Because the glorious hope for the Christian believer is not to escape the prison house of the body and float into some great spiritual soup. The Greek philosopher Plato thought that the body was a prison house of the soul. Paul would have none of that nonsense. At the very heart of his vision for the believer, he sets the idea of a redeemed body. One day we shall receive glorified bodies, bodies that allow us to live in both heaven and earth, bodies that will be free from illness and pain. As C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity has an extraordinarily high view of the body. It's important to note that the scripture, no, scriptures nowhere promise to heal our bodies. Often God in his mercy does heal them, of course. But scripture never allows us to claim that as a right. Certain strands of charismatic theology teach that Christ's victory in the cross was over sickness. So we can claim healing in Jesus' name now. Well, I guess the obvious repost to that idea is to point out that all the charismatics who make that claim get older and eventually die. Their teeth fall out, they go deaf, their hair goes gray, and eventually they become infirm. So shouting victory over a cancer patient is just a form of special pleading. If Christ really did offer us victory over sickness as a result of his work on the cross, none of us would ever get old. Now, the theology of Romans 8 helps us understand this. The Christian believer is never promised healing as a right, but we are promised that God will redeem our bodies and give us new glorified ones that will inhabit eternity. So where do these verses leave us? Where does Paul's vision of a glorious future for creation and for the believer where does that leave us? Well, he says in verse 23, it makes us groan. We are situated between the already and the not yet. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been saved in terms of justification, we are being saved in terms of sanctification, we will be saved in terms of future glory. 
And the tension between life now and life in the future can make us groan, groan with a deep longing. We can't see our future, Paul says, because by definition, the glorious future he's described can't be seen in the here and now. It involves modes of reality that we don't even understand. And so we have to endure suffering while we wait for a future we cannot see. And that makes us groan. There's a lovely balance in these verses which teaches us how to live in the space between the already and the not yet. Paul says that we, in verse 23, we wait eagerly. Okay? But then in verse 25, he says we wait patiently. If all we did was to wait eagerly, then the risk would be that we become escapists who don't see any point in this life in the here and now. On the other hand, if all we did was to endure patiently, we would end up as fatalists. So the Christian is called to balance patient endurance with eager expectation. And the only way that that balance can be achieved is if we see the link between suffering and glory. So I'm going to put this in bold, direct terms. If you don't get the idea that God is transforming you into a mature, grown-up son or daughter of God, then you'll never be able to balance endurance and expectation. If all you've got is a childhood conversion and a vague feeling that Christ will wave a magic wand and turn you into his likeness, then you'll end up as a childish escapist or a hopeless fatalist. Now, if I sound a bit passionate on this point, it's because I'm talking about one of my own deepest struggles. I am full of hope for the life to come, but I really struggle to find hope in this life. The apparent futility of life is the dark shadow that hangs over my own life. The answer is to catch hold of Paul's vision of transformation. Only then do all the deprivations and pains of life in this fallen old world start to make sense. The only way to survive in the space between the already and the not yet is to grasp Paul's vision of transformation from a mere child of God to into a mature heir, a grown-up son or daughter of the Most High. And it is that vision which provides the logical link between suffering and glory. So we have thought about a glorious hope for creation and a glorious hope for the believer. And I guess the obvious question now is, okay, well, on what foundation does that hope rest? What's the basis of my confidence in Paul's glorious vision? How can I know it's not just a pipe dream? Well, the apostle answers those questions in verses 26 through 30, which we are now going to read together. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And as in the first section, this second section also divides into two parts. 
Paul furnishes us with two foundation stones, if you like, two foundations for hope. In verses 26 and 27, he talks about the intricate work of God within us. And then in verses 28 to 30, he talks about the unshakable purposes of God for us. See, so the work of God within us and the purposes of God for us. So we'll begin by looking at verses 26 and 27. You see, when it comes to a conversation that I might have with the Lord Jesus about how I'm getting on in my transformation journey, I'm not sure I could say anything terribly profound because the human personality is so intricate, it's so complicated, I really don't know what bits of me need to be tackled next. But fortunately, says Paul, we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and he knows us better than we know ourselves. So he and the Lord Jesus can cooperate in changing me through the circumstances of life. They decide what my next test should be, what the focus of my spiritual development should be. Suffering Christians down through the centuries have taken great comfort in verse 26. Believers crushed by the loss of a loved one or by childlessness or the loneliness of a single life have known the truth that God the Holy Spirit can take our groanings and bring them to the throne of grace. So I don't want to take anything away from that truth. But in the context of the passage, I think Paul's main thought here is about the groans we make when we become conscious of how far we still have to travel in order to achieve Christian maturity. Back at the end of chapter 7, we heard Paul groan himself. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And the lovely pastoral point here is that God doesn't abandon us to transform ourselves. He doesn't just save us and then give us an instruction manual and say, see you in heaven. God the Holy Spirit is with us every step of the way to Christian maturity. There's a lovely story in the Old Testament about how Abraham's servant Eliezer, he sent on a mission to find a wife for his master's son Isaac. Eliezer finds this lovely girl called Rebecca, and he puts her on her camel and he leads her every step of the way home to Isaac's tent. Now, imagine if after describing the proposal to her, hearing her accept, he had handed her Abraham's business card and said, well, look, if you ever do make it to Canaan, head for a place called Mamre, and turn left at a clump of palm trees, and his tent is third on the left. No, of course not. Eliezer is a picture of the Holy Spirit, and he leads us every step of the way until the bride of Christ is brought to the master's home. It's the Holy Spirit who decides what paths we should travel, and when we should travel, and at what pace. He navigates us through a whole series of tests designed to transform us into the likeness of Christ. Now, that is an intricate, delicate task that only the indwelling Spirit of God can perform. Then, in the last few verses, 28 through 30, Paul provides us with a second foundation stone on which our hope can rest. We can be sure of our glorious future, not only because of the intricate work of God in within us, but because of the unshakable purposes of God for us. Everything that happens to us, he says in verse 28, Everything aligns with God's purpose. Now, some Christians have misinterpreted this verse. They think Paul is saying that it's all good. Everything that happens is good. Well, that's nonsense. Cancer is not good. The death of a child is not good. But for the Christian believer, we can know that God can weave even the most difficult of life circumstances into a journey that will achieve for us a weight of eternal glory that outweighs the pain of the present. In the final two verses, the apostle pans the camera back 
so that we can see the purposes of God right from eternity past into eternity future. And he deliberately sets this, the hard grind of sanctification that he's been talking about, in its widest context. Throughout Romans, Paul has consistently taught that anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved through faith in Christ. And in verse 29, he tells us that in eternity past, God foreknew those who would accept the gift of salvation. Some Reformed theologians are embarrassed by this verse because on the surface, it undermines the idea that God predetermines those who will get saved. And so what they do is they they broaden the concept of foreknowledge to include the idea of being foreloved and forechosen. Now, for myself, I see no need to embellish the text. The idea that God can foreknow who chooses Christ as Savior without imposing salvation is entirely logical. Now, I appreciate that we're drawing this study to a close. The philosophy of time is not a subject that attracts sane people, so feel free to ignore the next 30 seconds. But I know that some of you are troubled by these issues. So let me ask you a question. If God foreknows that I will wash my car next Tuesday, does that mean I must wash my car next Tuesday? In other words, is foreknowledge basically the same thing as being predetermined? Well, it turns out that the answer is no. If God foreknows that I will wash my car next Tuesday, it only means that I will wash my car next Tuesday, not that I must wash it. That's because the event is logically prior to the foreknowledge of the event. If I don't end up washing my car next Tuesday, God would have foreknown that I would not, in fact, have done so. So my free choice can be foreknown without being determined. Okay, the same people can now return to our study. While you were away, we learned that I have no intention of washing my car next week. God knows it. Uh, the dogs in the street know it. Now, the main mistake people make in verse 29 is that they insert a comma in the text, which is not there. So if you have the text in front of you, let me explain the problem. Some people think Paul says this. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, comma, to be conformed to the image of his son. But there is no comma. The thing that is predetermined is the project to conform you to the likeness of Christ. That is the non-negotiable. Once God takes you on as a follower of Christ, it is certain, 100% certain, that he will transform you into the likeness of Christ. If we cooperate with his Holy Spirit, then we do it the easy way. If we don't, then it will be the hard way. But one way or another, God's unshakable purposes cannot be thwarted. Everyone who accepts Christ as Savior and Lord will complete the project to conform them to the likeness of Christ. In the final verse, Paul then describes the stages of the great transformation project for everyone who he has decreed will finish the project. Now, the interesting thing about his stages is that he leaves sanctification out. In other words, He doesn't talk about all the hard grind and the suffering of being transformed in this old fallen world that he's been talking about in the whole passage. And that's quite deliberate, because what he's doing is he's finishing the section off by wrapping all that he has been teaching in this wider story. The story that began in eternity past when he foreknew our decision to come to Christ. Then comes the moment when we were justified through faith, and then finally in the future when we are glorified. So, Paul has taught us four things in these verses. He has described the Christian hope not so much as a timeline, but as a journey of transformation into mature sons and daughters of God. 
So first he explained the glorious hope for creation. And then he talked about the glorious hope for the Christian believer. And then he provided us with two great foundation stones on which our hope can rest. There is the intricate work of God within us, the God who never leaves us, and then there is the unshakable purpose of God for us. So we're done. Rather than me pray now, it might be an idea after we've sung a hymn for you to pray over these verses in the privacy of your own home. But before we close the service, uh, let's sing uh, a most appropriate hymn. There is a hope. There is a hope that burns within my heart that gives me strength for every passing day. A glimpse of glory now revealed in meager part, yet drives all doubt away. We'll sing it together and then our service will be over.